I was told this morning that this was my fourth time here, and uh, I'm, this church is an example of grace and mercy because I believe it was my first time here. I made a joke about Mississippi State and Alabama, and uh, it was afterwards Pastor Kelby uh, reminded me, he said, you, you do know what country you're in, right? Uh, and, and you guys still asked me to come back, so... Uh, that was an example of grace and mercy, and, and, uh, but in, in all honesty, it has been a great joy every time I've been here. And I ask you to pray for me as I bring God's word to you this morning. Um, I'm going to ask you to open up to the book of Romans chapter 7. And in a moment, we will be reading verses 14 through 25. As you turn to Romans 7, we are turning to a classic passage dealing with remaining sin in the believer. And what we see in this passage is not only the existence of sin that is in the believer, what is theologically called remaining sin, but we also see, as I hope to show you, God's purpose in allowing sin to continue in believers, or at least one of God's purposes. Think about this for a moment. If God could, and we know that He can, instantly change us where we can no longer sin anymore, why does He not do that? Well, at least one of the answers that we will see comes from a writer by the name of Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan writer. And in his exposition of Romans chapter 8, verses 28, uh, most of us know that passage. God works all things to the good of those who love him, to the called according to his purpose. He puts under this rubric all things, or at least one of the things God uses for our own good, is our remaining corruption. And he gives the reasons for this. Why would God allow us to continue to struggle with sin? And he says this, it makes the saints prize Christ more. And he explains how that happens. He that feels his sin, as a sick man feels his sickness, how welcome is Christ the physician to him. In other words... Our struggles, our inward trials, push us to a tighter hold and increase our appreciation of the gospel, in particular the work of our Lord. And as we turn to the book of Romans chapter 7, to give you a little background of this context here, what Paul is attempting to do is to take the believer's hope completely away from the law. For example, in verses 1 through 6, he teaches that the believer is dead to the law. In verses 7 through 13, he even shows that the law, at least as it functions on an unrenewed person, not only does it not make him any better, but it wrought in him, the King James Version says, the idea is that it, it stirs up in him sin. 
as, as this, the unbeliever looks at this outward moral code and the way he responds to it. And, and Paul's point is simply this, that the law can neither save a person, in fact, in, in many cases, it can even be the occasion of stirring sin up, so it, it, it is, as far as an external code, it doesn't even make us holy in and of and by itself. Now, why is he doing this? Because as we get to ch- uh, verse 14 through 25 that we're about to read, Paul is going to show that even in the believer, not just a non-believer, but even in the believer, the law is not a mechanism that can ever in this life bring us perfection. And if that is true, then we must seek perfection or our hope from some other place. And then in verse 14, Paul says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then, I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... With the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who you have sent to illuminate us. And Father, I pray that you would do such this morning as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon once mentioned how, once compared outward affliction in the believer's life to waves that push us up against Christ like a rock. He said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Now here he's referring to outward afflictions that calls him to run and to flee and to hold tighter to Christ. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that it is not only outward afflictions that cause us to run to Christ over and over and to hold to Him, but is even the worst possible affliction, the inward affliction of sin or remaining sin. I entitled the sermon this morning, Remaining Sin and God's Purpose or God's purpose in remaining sin. 
going to have three points. I want you to see from this passage the corruption of sin in the believer. Secondly, the conflict of sin within the believer. And thirdly, the comfort that we have in this passage towards the believer. So, first of all, the corruption. No doubt you've noticed as we read this passage, there are a number of uh, very negative, dark descriptions of Paul here that I believe, and and I'll get to this later, describing even a Christian. For example, just in verse 14, he talks about, I am carnal. It's the same word Paul uses to describe the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.3. He says, I am sold under sin, a very strong statement. Uh, Many have looked, as, as they look at this, say there's no way Paul could be describing a Christian. I'll get to that later. But all throughout this passage, even especially verse 24, Paul says, wretched man, and you'll notice that he says that I am, present tense, not not in the past, but rather as he are now. And if if this is surprising, how could Paul describe himself or a believer as wretched? I simply remind you the same exact word translated wretched here in Revelation 3.17. Our Lord uses it to describe the church at Laodicea that thought they were rich and they had everything they needed. And he says, not knowing that thou art wretched. But the question is, why would Paul describe himself in this way? Why, at this point in his letter, would he speak this way, especially when we read the rest of the New Testament? And and this is not normal language. When you read most of the New Testament, what do we read? That believers are holy. That believers are saints, Romans 1. All throughout the Bible, that that, that we actually do good works. Well, the reason Paul describes himself this way is because in the context, he is speaking from a very specific or particular perspective. He is speaking of himself in light of the the far-reaching, holy, moral law of God. Now, when I use the word moral law, think of the Ten Commandments, which are a summary. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a summary of the Ten Commandments, which are actually a reflection of the eternal, unchanging character of God. In verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, and then he compares himself, but I am carnal and sold under sin. You see, Paul, as he looked at himself in light of the law, noticed that he felt short of this. You see, when it says the law is spiritual, this word spiritual, at the very least, means that it involves more than merely outward actions. Remember our Lord teaching on this regarding murder and adultery and earlier in the letter in in chapter 7 Paul had mentioned that the commandment do not covet which doesn't have necessarily do anything outwardly it has something to do inwardly in verse 9 he said it is that which kill him he says for I was alive verse 9 without the law once but when the commandment came meaning when it came home to him when it registered when he understood it he says then I died 
You see, the law of God demands not only outward conformity, but inward conformity. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet none of us, no man, even a redeemed man, has never done that for one second with his entire being without any sin. And you see, when we view ourselves in light of that, in light of the law, we say with Paul, compared to that, I'm carnal. Compared to what God truly caused me to be and to do in my life, to the degree that he deserves and to the degree that I desire to give it to him, I am carnal. And you say, well, that just sounds so strange to me. Do you remember the Old Testament? The book of Isaiah. You remember a man named Isaiah? If you and I had lived on the earth that time, we, we would have went to Isaiah and we would have said, that's a holy man. If, if there's a godly man, it's him. God used him to preach, to, or to pro, be a prophet to his people. And do you remember, though, what happened? When chapter 6, when he goes in the very presence of God, this holy man that God used, it was God's man. Do you remember what happened? Well, I'll tell you this, Isaiah did not just walk up into God's presence as if I'm holy God, I'm great, which those things from an earthly perspective were absolutely true. God, I love you, here I am. Those things were true. But this holy man, this godly man, when he went into the very presence of God, instead of being comfortable, do you remember what he said? Woe is me. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah wasn't confessing to deep, hidden sin or open sin. He just lived his life as he wanted to. But you see, viewed in the light of that holy one who sat upon the throne, all he could see is sin. And as one writer said, it is as if sin was coming out of every single pore in his body. You see, Paul is not speaking here as some outward sinner who hates God. He is speaking as one who loves God, but viewed in light of that moral law that is spiritual, he understood that everything that we do before the eyes of God is mixed, it's tainted, and it is stained. And that should raise a question in your mind. Well, if that's true, how come the scriptures tell us to pray and to, to preach and to listen and to do good works if they're just, you know, they're all just tainted. Well, I want you to think about something for a moment. In fact, let me just read it to you. In 1 Peter 2, 5, I, I think the rest of the scriptures explain to us why we're to do that and why God does accept it. And by the way, it's not because it, it, these things are not true. It's not because they're perfect. But he says in 1 Peter 2, 5 that you and I, speaking of the church, are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, but listen, acceptable, in other words, here's why they're acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, the only reason God accepts any of our most heartfelt worship is not because it's not tainted, it's not because it's sinless, it's because our Savior not only saves us from the results of our sin, but He has to save our worship. He has to save our prayers. 
He has to save everything that proceeds from our hearts that are still not glorified yet. A number of years ago, I was reading a... Um, my, my son, this is back when he started playing baseball. He got me interested in baseball again. And as crazy as this sounds, I went back and got a baseball rule book just to read one summer. And as I was reading this book, I, I ran across an interesting fact that I played baseball in my life, had no idea. But did you know that in the major league, when baseballs are made, when they come out, there's a gloss on them. And there used to be a rule the umpire had to do this. Now I think they, they pay other people to do this. But there used to be a rule that the umpire, before play, before the day where they play, there's some specific mud that comes from Delaware. You can look this up if you, you, you think this sounds a little weird. I promise you it's true. I went and looked at this. It sounded uh, so weird. But there's a particular type of mud that will almost smear on clear to take the gloss off. And that's... that's where all the mud comes from, and they must rub this on, and it won't discolor the ball for every ball that's used. Now, that means any Major League Baseball game you've ever watched, if you watch it, you, there's home runs, hits, strikeouts, foul ball, balls. Going, you're just seeing the action. You watch it. You cheer. You go home. But there's a process. Yeah, all that stuff happened that, that people are unaware of that takes place. I learned that. Why am I giving you this illustration? Yes, in the scriptures, we do, men do good works. Yes, we, we praise God. Yes, we pray. Yes, there is a holiness of the believer, but there's an action that, 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 that's outside of what we're aware of with all of this going on, something previous to it, and it is that the blood of Christ, He perfumes everything that proceeds from us up to God where it becomes acceptable. And I labor this point Merely to say this is that when you read these descriptions, Paul is still speaking to saints. He's still speaking to holy people. But listen, this is a reality that I want you to think about that you and, I, and me, when we are in our most holy frame of mind, when we feel closest to God and thank God for those times, when we are judged by this law and really what God requires of us, we fall so far below the standard that when we look at it, we've got to say, God, I'm carnal. You see, but thanks be to God, there's coming a day when we shall worship God with unsinning heart. But that day is not yet. And you see, the Christian yearns for this, and it causes us to keep going to Christ, saying, I worship you, but my worship is nothing. And we long not only for more holiness, but we long for the day when we will trade these, these rags, that we, these righteousness that is filthy rags, we will trade that for the perfect robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I must move on. Secondly, I want you to see the believer's conflict. And there's no way to do justice and particularly differing debates of, as far as some of these passages. But I want to try to do this section justice looking at the believer's conflict. In verses 7 through 13, I, I want you to think about something. If you, you go back and read that, you'll notice, and, and I believe he's talking about an unrenewed person, an unsaved person between verses 7 and 13. There's no groaning. There's no fighting. There's not saying, I hate this. I'm doing what I hate. Oh, God, deliver me. And we find that later. But verses 7 through 13, it's just defeat. 
And something interesting happens. From verse 14 and following, which we just read, he goes from speaking about a past tense to, and many theologians have noticed this, to speaking about the present tense. Many believe, and, and I'm one of them, for, and I'll show you some reasons in a moment, that believe Paul is not talking about his past life. Now he's talking about the present uh, situation of a believer. And I'll give you some reasons for this. In verse 15, he talks about the thing I hate, talking about sin. The thing I hate, I, I do the thing I hate. Now I will tell you this. If there's one thing I know about an unbeliever, a person in whom the Holy Spirit does not reside, I know that they sin, but I know that they don't hate their sin. Now, they may hate the consequences of it. They may hate what it leads to. They may hate a lot of the, the, the effects of it, but they do not hate the sin. That, this is a description that can only be true in the truest sense of a person in whom God has changed their nature to reflect his own desires. But as he continues on down in verse uh, 17, Now then it is no more than I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul is not denying responsibility. He's not saying, well, I'm not sinning. But he's, he, he just notices that when he sins, what does he mean? Well, I'm not doing it. I don't do it. Well, I think Paul is speaking here that the most foundational truth about him is not that he's a sinner. Yes, he's a sinner. But that is not the most foundational. It is not the most fundamental truth in whom uh, a person in whom God has regenerated them. Yes, it is part of their existence. Yes, it is part of their life. It is inescapable in a sense. But it's not the sense of what he truly wants in his deepest of desires. That's what he's referring to here. Think of it like this. If, if, if you're a believer today, I, have, I don't have to ask you this. I just know. If I were to tell you that you could stop sinning, never sin again, that there was a button over here that you could run and push. I have no doubt that you would get up, even while I'm preaching, even though it would be disrespectful to me. You wouldn't care. You'd run over there to push it right now. That's because you're a sinner. But you know what? I know if you're a believer, that's not your ultimate desire. Not that you don't recognize sin, but you know that when you sin, that's not really who you are. It's not really what you want. When you think about it and you, and you really consider it in light of God, even in your, your deepest moment of prayer, that's not you. That's all Paul is saying. He's not saying I'm not guilty. But he is speaking from his deepest uh, desires here. He says, verse 18, for I know that in me, and I like what he says there, that is in my flesh. He's qualifying it here. He's saying I'm not speaking about my whole person. Yes, the Holy Spirit dwells in me. That's good. That's in me. Paul's saying I'm not talking about that. He says that I'm talking about in my flesh, in my sin, there's nothing good there. Salvation doesn't change the flesh. The flesh is always the flesh. He says to, for, to will is to present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. In other words, not that he never finds how to do good. He was Paul. But he's saying to do good to the degree that I desire, the times I desire, he said, I just, I can't do that. I want to, but I can't. Verse 19, for the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, 
If I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then, verse 21, a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Think about that for a minute. It's an experience of a believer. John Owen once said that the holier, and this is not an exact quote, but these are some notes I made. He, he once made a comment regarding this, that the holier the duty, prayer, attending to the word of God, the holier the duty, the closer communion that it calls from us, he said, the more our flesh rages out. We, we, we'll, we'll want to embrace any distraction to get away from that at times. And we wish it wasn't that way. Paul says, when I would do good, evil is right there with me. 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. What does he mean? Well, this law of God we've already seen as an eternal reflection of his character. It's unchanging. And Paul says, I delight in that, in his inner being. Meaning, I delight in it. It's, it's not surface level. But in my heart of hearts, in my real self, in my inmost self, what I love above all things is God. And what I love about him is his word. Verse 23 says, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, verse 23, when it mentions a law, at least here, don't think of an outward moral code of conduct like the law. Now, the Bible does use that word uh, at times like that. But Paul is using the word law, as many have noticed, here, like the law of gravity. It is a power. It is a force. And he, he feels it. He senses it. At times, he says, verse 23, it brings me into captivity. Now, many have read this verse and say, I understand what you said, but this is too strong to be referring to a believer. Paul has already taught in Romans 6, we're not slave to sin. Paul can't be now, you know, contradicting himself, but I want to give you a different way of understanding that. I don't think Paul, in fact, I know he's not contradicting himself, but if we understand the difference, and listen, I want you to use your mind for a minute, between remaining sin, which I believe Paul is talking about here, and reigning sin, which is true of every believer, that, that sin reigns in their heart, there's, there's a difference. And, and let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. Paul is not giving us statistics here. He, he's not saying, this, this is me all the time in the sense that I, I just live it up. I do what I want to. I sin, you know, do whatever. That's not what Paul's referring to. Let me give you an example of a way maybe to think about this. In the mid-90s, the Chicago Bulls, the basketball team, had... Um, as far as I know, the most win. This may have changed. I don't keep up with basketball like my kids do. But at one point, they had the most wins ever in a season. It was 72 wins and only 10 losses. Now, they had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, amazing team. And I noticed, saw an article a number of years ago that, that followed them. And, and it didn't talk about their wins. Everybody knows about the highlights. You can go watch this. We want to know what happened in those 10 losses. And you go back and you read descriptions. The writer mentioned Jordan, horrible shooting. You know, bad passing. Scottie Pippen, terrible. Had a, you know, zero for, you know, 22 shots, something like that. Now, if you'd have went and just read 
the description of one of those games, one of those bad games, you would have said, man, he's Bulls, this Jordan guy. He, he, he's, well, I'm being careful with, you know, words that kids use that, that kids aren't, call them garbage cans and all this stuff, whatever the word is, of someone that's just not really good. And you know what? You would have been absolutely right in that game. He, not a lie. Jordan, man, he was a garbage can. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, he was a garbage can. Go read the description. Well, yeah, if I go that one game, you're absolutely right. That's true. But that is not the picture. That is not. There's a lot more to the story than that if you go watch the season. It'll change your mind. It'll give you a little nuance, a little balance there. I believe what Paul is doing, he, he's not saying we're like the bulls when we lost and you know, this is our description of our life, and we're just living it up in the world. We're great sinners, slaves to sin. Paul isn't talking about that. But he recognizes that even amongst those who God has saved, there are times in the day when you're going to agree with Paul. You're going to sin. You're not going to be Michael Jordan. You're, not going to be the, you're going to be the 0 for 22, and you're going to look and say, I'm sold under sin. I became a slave to sin. Not as a pattern of your life, but in moments. And it happens. Now, I want to make a point from this before we move on to our last point. If this was a reality in Paul, and it was, then it's a reality in us. And if it's a reality in us, this should change our demeanor towards others. Now, this is... Very convicting to me because um, this morning we're, we, we were off of our routine, my family routine. We got up at a different time. Everybody, nobody knows where their stuff is. All of a sudden, we're having to leave late. I've got to drive an hour. We've got to be in, uh, we've got to be in Caledonia. And I wasn't the nicest person the whole time here. I was hurrying them up. I even had to apologize to my wife on the way here because I was going over my notes and I got to this point that I was going to make that we need to realize that this sin is in the best of men. It, it, and and it, listen, it's, it's in our, our wives, it's in our children, it's in us, it's in our, our bosses, it's in the people that work for you, it's in your daughter-in-law, it's in your mother-in-law, it's in your mother-in-law, I promise but it's, it's everywhere. And I'm not saying it's always easy to let this penetrate us, but I'm telling you, if you just recognize that person you're mad at for sinning against you is a lot more like you than unlike you, we tend to be more compassionate, and we go from being harsh to being gentle. And that's exactly what our Savior is to us. It's what he was to Paul. Paul's in heaven right now. And Paul was a sinner. One day you and I will be in heaven. And we're still great sinners. That's just mercy. And God calls us to give it to each other. And I must hurry. I'm watching the time here. I want to go to our last point. And that's the comfort to the believer. If you've ever read the Psalms, and some people have compared Romans 8 to a psalm. You've never... David's Psalms in particular, he would just be groaning, God, where are you? And, or, or it would be Psalm 51 over sin, and it would just be this groaning, this grieving, this calling out to God, God's nowhere. And then there's this rejoicing at the end. 
of being reminded of God's character and God's deliverance and what God does. does that same here. Paul starts with grief. He, he's crying out. And now he starts with grief all the way to verse 24. You notice what he says. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And by the way, the body of death, some say this, is a, this, this refers to a literal practice of the Romans that when uh, a murderer, for example, they would take the body that, that, of the person they murdered and would literally chain it to him where he would sit with this rotting corpse as part of his punishment. And some people believe Paul's alluding to that as our sin. Others see in this that Paul's just using... Uh, the body of death is a figurative way to, to, to speak about the sin that remains within us. But the purpose, I believe all of this drives us to, remember I told you God's purpose in a lag remaining sin is to cause us to call out to the Lord, to continually to go to Him, to hold on to Him stronger, to appreciate the gospel more and more, day after day, month after year, year after year, we grow in the deepness of our understanding of our Lord and Savior, is verse 25. Notice what he comes to. He doesn't stop at his sin. He, he's, he's, he's complained, he's, he's uh, cried out, but he says, verse 25, here's the comfort. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who shall deliver him? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will deliver. Now, there's a, few, there's a present deliverance. God has delivered believers. You can read this in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has justified us. That is complete it is unchanging. He declares us righteous through faith based upon the completed work of Jesus Christ alone that is done. We have been delivered from the consequences of sin right now. We're not waiting for that. It'll be declared openly one day, but it's already true right now. We've been delivered. That's part of the deliverance. But there's also a future deliverance, which we've been talking about. And you can read about this at the end of Romans 8 where he said the whole creation is groaning. There, there's coming a day he's going to free creation. He's going to free, and that's great. But part of that is an even greater work. He's going to free us from this sin. And so he's going to deliver us from this. And Paul says, I thank God that in Christ I have deliverance. And then he ends with something. And I'm going to call this a, a, a biblical realism. Paul states in verse 25, after thanking the Lord for his deliverance, he says, so then, as if to have a conclusion, with the mind, with his heart, with his soul, he said, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul is simply stating that as long as he lives, he's going to love God, serve God, that's mainly him, yet as long as he lives... There is a reality that sin will cling to him for the rest of his life. You see, there's only one hero in the Bible. And it's not Paul. Although we're to follow him as he follows the Lord. It's not Peter. It's not anyone but the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's, he's the only one that ever lived without sin. Your favorite pastor that you, you may think, or preacher you think is the greatest in the world, he has sin. 
And Paul sees that in life this is true. Now, why would Paul mention this? Because if, 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 you're, if you're following along with me, no doubt you're thinking, well, if you preach that, an unbeliever's going to hear that, and they're going to think you can just live like you want. Paul's already done away with that in Romans 6. Paul says, how shall we that have died, died to sin live any longer there? In other words, dwell there, and that be our common practice. He says it's impossible. We're, I'm not preaching this to unbelievers. I'm preaching this to believers, and here's why. God put this here because there are people who need to understand that as they look around and they see this preacher or this family that for whatever reason is far above them in graces, they think they have no grace. J.I. Packer, if you've ever read a Christian book, you've probably noticed he's written the foreword to it or something on it. But J.I. Packer, who's become, who became very influential in his early Christianity, after he was converted... He said he came to a crisis. He said there was a lot of false teaching about perfectionism. And he knew that he was around these people that appeared to have a lot more than what he did. He knew the sin in his own heart. And it caused him to draw the conclusion that he must not be God. See, this was worthless to even try. I'm trying and I don't feel holy. And he said he could have easily, this would have easily led him to suicide if it was not for two great discoveries. The writings of John Owen on Romans 7, which is what we're looking at, Romans 7, and J.C. Ryle's Book of Holiness, which has a section on Romans 7. You see, this doctrine was a healing balm to him who recognized that this struggle that I have is not unique to me. But it is something that all Christians have. It is something that Paul has. You see, the gospel is not something we needed just when we were first converted. The gospel is something we need every single day. I needed it on the way here with my own family. And I'm thankful it's there. And that brings me to my conclusion. I want to see something to the unbeliever and to the believer. First of all, to the unbeliever. When you hear about sin, recognize that when you hear me say, I sin as a believer, and, and these others sin, and you're an unbeliever, and you say, well, you sin, I sin, what's the big deal? Well, there's a big difference. You see, with my sin, not because of anything I've done, not because I'm good, not because I'm better than you, all because of God's grace in His Son, Jesus Christ, forgiving me, me repenting and believing and putting all my hope on Him, I'm forgiven all because of that, not me, and you're not. The very big difference between, yes, we're both sinners, but, but listen to me, unbeliever. Something's been done about my sin. What about yours? Not only that, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. What's the difference on a daily basis? Well, I sin on a daily basis, you sin on a daily basis. But here, sin will not have dominion and power over me, not because I'm great, not because I'm powerful, but God has done something in me. Is it perfect yet? No, it is not. It is a long way from being perfect. But it's substantial. It's where I can say that I am a new creature in Christ, and there's a reality to that. You can't say that. And lastly, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Well, one day when we stand before God, I'll stand before him before sin, and you will too, but there's still a big difference between just you a sinner and me a sinner. 
all of mine are put on Christ. I fear no condemnation. I don't. Again, not because I'm better than you, not because I'm good, not because I'm great. It is because Christ, when he died on the cross, he took all that. And so don't, unbeliever, look at this sin and say, we're in the same boat. No, we're not. We're not in the same boat. But here's the good news. Even this very moment, by repenting and believing in the gospel in Jesus Christ, you can have all of that. And my prayer is God will work that in you through repentance and faith and putting all your hope on Christ. There's no cleaning up. There's nothing to do. Go to Him. And you will find Him with His arms wide open. And to the believer, and this is my last point, you should be able to read verse 24, O wretched man that I am, and make that your biography day after day. Somebody writes, writes a biography about you, they could make that the title and talk about myself. It is true. It might not be all that's true, but this at least is true. And the beauty is you and I can keep fleeing to him over and over and over. And you may get to a point years down the road, you, you, your, your heart goes enough, and you just can't believe that you could say those things, do those things, knowing the things you do, the experiences you have. And God keeps showing you over and over and over, yes, you can do those things because you're not there yet. You are not perfect. You are still a great sinner in need of Christ every single day. And every time you go to him, you're just going to, your eyes are going to grow. You're going to see the gospel and your estimation grow and grow and grow and grow. And instead of something way back then you need it, you're going to see you need it even more every day. And yet, here's the good news, it's still sufficient. And I end with this. It's a quote from John Newton talking about how our sin causes us to treasure Christ even more. He says, when believers... After a long experience, and I emphasize that, after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and spiritual insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ. Then, Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel that you have called us to preach to all men. And that all those who come to you in repentance and faith, whether they're unbelievers for the first time or your children who have strayed, you do not hold them at arm's length, but you embrace them and you continually change out their rags that are on their own righteousness and their own doings and even their own sin and you trade it for the righteousness and the robes, perfect robes of your son. God, I pray that you would help us to just rejoice this day in the gospel that our estimation of your son would grow and grow through years until that day when we see you and we no longer need a Bible, we no longer have to pray, but we will see you as you are. 
Until that day, we pray for grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.